It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 377 for January 26th, 2014. This week, many good ways exist to devise a good password, but there are lots of ways to create bad ones, too. The crooks want you to do the latter. The Federal Communications Commission could appeal the recent net neutrality ruling, should it? And in short circuits, how to get more out of your cellular provider's data limit, controlling a TV with your cell phone or tablet, bank ATMs that run Windows XP, that would be most of them, face a deadline, goodbye to log me in and hello to a new music streaming service. I saw an article this week on the 25 most commonly used useless passwords. For a long time, the most common bad password was the word password itself. It has been superseded by 123456. The security firm Splash Data compiles the top 25 list every year. And that reminded me of a white paper from Bitium, a provider of single sign-on systems for businesses on the subject of password mistakes that the bad guys hope you'll make. SSO systems, by the way, are services that allow users to sign on to a dashboard application, and then the dashboard provides your username and password to all the various systems that you need during the day. They're pretty popular in businesses. Bidium's white paper discussed common mistakes people make with passwords. I talked with the company's CEO, Scott Chris, about the report. One trend we're seeing is that people bring smartphones, tablets, and notebook computers into the workplace. This is called BYOD, bring your own device. Sometimes these devices are allowed to operate on the corporate network, and as a result, usually contain the user's credentials for corporate assets. The BYOD, um, and, and we call it BYOA, which is bring your own app, is it's something that companies have to be aware of that's going to exist whether or not they want to or not. So. Um, even if the policy of a company is that you can't install an application on the device, uh, typically what what we find is that if it gets the, the employee's job done uh, more efficiently, they're going to go ahead and do that uh, without regard to the IT policy. So um, it's really a question of, of how you deal with that as, as a company, and that's, I think, the, the complex piece is, is recognizing that um, there's, there's a difference between um, perceived security, um, having policies, and, and actually um, setting up secure environments. So um, password is just one component of that. Um, accessing through mobile devices is another. Um, there's yet a, a third, which is probably the, the more complex uh, solution, which is on a network layer, restricting what people can access and cannot. Your, your white paper looked uh, at some of the problems that, uh, that occur with passwords. So regardless of all the dangers, usernames and passwords still seem to be kind of the first line of defense. There are several security experts who have said that passwords are dead, but they just don't know it yet. We keep using them even though they provide more of an illusion of security in some cases than any real security. But they're what we have now, I guess. So it's what we use. So what are some of the main mistakes that people make when they set up passwords? Yeah, I think think the main mistakes that that we're seeing are the, the most simple is that the passwords are too short. So um, the length 
of, of the passwords and, and the character sets that are being used. That's something that's easy for a user to solve by making a longer passphrase, um, including things like an actual phrase with, with uh, spaces in it. However, there are some restrictions there where some applications limit uh, what you can use for character sets. So it's an inconsistency that applies across applications where uh, if you were to try to set the most secure password you can, in some cases, uh, the application won't accept them. So, you know, random password generators are, are a good solution to solve that. And, and um, there are many of them that you specify the character set, you specify the, the number of characters you use. There's also, uh, you know, passwords being dead is a very interesting concept. I, I think passwords are certainly going away over time, but bringing up, you know, well, what's the reality today? The majority of, of the thousands of applications that exist today are purely password. Beyond the password is, is setting up uh, two-factor authentication. Companies like Google let you do this where you actually have to confirm a second authentication when logging into to the app. And that might be something like you get a text message to your cell phone with a, with a code or you use an application that you can download to get the code that, that changes periodically. Um, but on the password, it's really around the character set you use, also around the length of password. And then there are... In, in kind of the dark web, there are passwords that are regularly used by many people. So avoiding the, the common passwords, and there's published lists that come out every year. There are things like password123 or ABCDEFG. But basically using common sense for, I think, uh, randomly generating alphanumeric with, with a longer password. I know there are people, because I've talked to some of them, who absolutely refuse to create a strong password simply because it's too hard for them to type upper and lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols on a smartphone or a tablet. And then to make matters even worse, some of these people don't even password protect their tablets or their smartphones. I, I've seen some estimates that it's in excess of 40% of smartphone users don't even password protect the device itself. Do you have any data on, on that as a really how, how widespread that practice is? We don't actually uh, store consistent data over time for what the uh, passwords on, on devices, for example, or, or strong versus weak passwords. We do, as a company, have aggregate information on passwords that people use for applications, on the thousands of applications that exist uh, through web-based browsers. And I will say without giving specifics on the statistics that the, the vast majority of passwords are what we consider weak to failing passwords from a brute force attack perspective, uh, meaning that they're, they're fairly easy to guess. And now there's, there's certain reasons why people, I think, feel secure not having complex passwords. One of the reasons is that for, for applications that have something to do with finance, so the banks and the credit cards of the world, they typically have more strong authentication where if you attempt to access with guessing passwords and it fails a certain amount of times, that you'll be locked out and you'll have to physically call and ver verify your identity with the provider. So I think while the, the passwords being weak is, is not a good thing for individuals, the general population has kind of learned to not care as much because the implication of having a password that isn't that strong uh, doesn't appear to be as dangerous. I think where the real danger lies is, is passwords that are consistent across multiple applications. So when you read an article about there being a, a data breach at, at Target where there are certain things and, and it could be access um, to being able to make payments, uh, the scarier part there is that uh, potentially the username and password 
that were stolen from a large company like that, it allows hackers to go out and just trial those passwords in banks, in other financial institutions. So the risk really, I think, lies more in the, the having a consistent password. It's just a matter of time before the next large company is announced to have a data breach where user accounts were compromised. And I think the general population has just really reacted by saying that they don't care about the, the strength of their password. And to a certain extent, I don't disagree with some applications. There are applications that really it's not the end of the world if somebody hacks into a, an application that is fairly benign. But if you're talking about mission critical in a company where it's actual data that's, that's sensitive, or you're talking about financial information on the individual side, that's, that's really where it becomes dangerous. So if you have, say, an account with a newspaper or something like that, it can have a fairly weak password. You just don't want to reuse those credentials, the username and the password, with, say, for example, your bank. Yeah, I think definitely not using the same ones. And there is a certain soft analysis to, to say, how, how annoying is it to type in a very complex, long password? What's the risk-reward for that individual application? In other words, if it's a website that has... Um, it's a, a Q&A website where it's really just a, a discussion forum. If somebody were to get into that account, is it really that dangerous and does it really cause you that much problem versus if someone were to get into your bank account or your credit card and the things that they could do? So not all applications should probably be treated equally, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I think that the main problem is having the, the same password for multiple accounts. Some of the basic rules for passwords are that they need to be unique for all sensitive sites. They need to be complex and they need to never be written down. And that that combination of requirements makes people crazy. What can a person do to remain sane in a world like this? Yeah, well, there are certainly tools out there that can assist in password remembering. So there are plugins for browsers, there are applications for mobile devices. They're typically called single sign-on applications and they enable you to do kind of what, what our company Bidium does on a corporate level, but to do it on an individual side. And I think that's a way to, to keep sane about it. And it's important to, to get it done once because the implication of something bad happening, you shouldn't wait for something bad to happen in order to get your house in order. Wherever you look today, there seems to be yet another challenge of privacy and security. There was the Target thing recently. And then after that, that was, oh, by the way, there seem to be some other fairly high profile stores that have had similar problems. And as you mentioned, it's just a matter of time until somebody else gets it. We got break-ins at uh, the various social media sites. Uh, we've got efforts by the government to defeat security measures. Does anybody really have even a small expectation of security? Well, I think that is part of the, the problem is that certainly in our culture that certain people take their security very seriously. Others tend to have a, a false sense of uh, security and, and assume that if something were to go wrong with their bank, for example, that the bank would somehow figure out a way to remedy the situation. It's not a healthy way to think, but it is part of our society. Um, so in other words, I think it's fairly commonplace for someone to have a, a fraud alert on their credit card, and it doesn't really worry them anymore because they view it as, well, that's American Express's problem, and they'll take care of it. But the, the truth is that it does impact you and that there can be some really negative things that come of people getting into your accounts. And it's threatening for them to get into one thing, but if that proliferates and, if, and lets them get access to other things, then we start getting into situations where they can actually steal an identity rather than just access an application and open up new accounts because of that. So it's really... It's the, the tip of the iceberg, so it's certainly worth paying attention to, not just from the isolated incident of, oh, somebody hacked into my Snapchat, for example. 
does that matter? Probably not. But is there other other ramifications that are waterfall effect because of that? That's Scott Kriz, the CEO of Bitium. And if you'd like to read the company's white paper on mistakes that people make when they create passwords, you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Bitium is designed primarily for businesses. For home users, services such as LastPass provide similar kinds of functionality. With a password manager such as LastPass, you'll need to remember the password for the service, but it remembers all of your other passwords. And you'll also find on the TechBiter Worldwide website Splash Data's list of the 25 most common lousy passwords. Uh, there's quite a bit of change this year from last year. In large part, this change was a result of a break-in at Adobe that exposed nearly 50 million passwords, some of which were used for test accounts. So you find things like Adobe 123 or Photoshop. The bottom line is if you see any of your passwords on that list, you better change them. I've been wondering if the FCC is going to appeal the recent net neutrality decision. And you might be wondering if you should care. Well, I think, yes, you should care. And I certainly hope that they do appeal the decision. There are dire predictions about what cable companies will do now that a federal appeals court has given them permission to do anything they want to do. But, as I've pointed out before, there is a difference between what is possible legally or technically and what works as a business model. So the dire predictions are unlikely to come true. In fact, if the cable companies decide to take some of the actions that have been predicted, they will be sowing the seeds of their own destruction. But still, there are some concerns. Although the appeals court struck down net neutrality rules on a technicality, the court did affirm the FCC's position as the regulator of broadband services. The court said the FCC simply improperly classified service providers. So the FCC could immediately fix the problem by properly classifying cable operators or it could appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. What net neutrality means, essentially, is that everyone has equal access to the network. In other words, the TechBiter Worldwide website should load just as quickly as one from, oh, say, the New York Times or Amazon. Good network management requires control of the data flow, but it should not include intentional slowing of data if the stream is from an organization that competes with the cable operator. And somehow, this has become a political argument instead of a technical discussion. That seems to be the very best possible way to ensure a bad outcome. The GOP says the providers should regulate themselves and that net neutrality will stifle competition. And they say that the market will regulate bad behavior. The Democrats, on the other hand, cite the near-monopoly position of cable companies. They say that customers are already being treated unfairly. Removal of the FCC rules, they say, would only make things worse. This debate began in 2007 when users accused Comcast of blocking peer-to-peer -peer services such as BitTorrent to manage its network traffic. A year later, the FCC released a decision that went against Comcast. This is a technical issue. Politics has no place here. The FCC could decide to reclassify Internet service providers, but FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler has not been exactly forthcoming with any guidance about what the agency plans to do. Congress could pass legislation to set rules, of course, 
but given the gridlock in Washington, that's about as likely as a moon landing by the Taliban. So, it seems that we're faced with the possibility of having two separate and unequal internets, one for organizations that have enough money to pay for faster service, and another for everybody else. Needless to say, this would automatically favor large, rich corporations, and it would stifle startups that couldn't pay enough to buy the bandwidth that would allow their sites to perform well. I think it's pretty likely that the FCC will appeal the ruling, and they'll leave it to the Supreme Court to make the final decision. But consider this. At a time when many countries are doing everything they can to provide high-speed Internet access to all citizens at reasonable prices, the recent court decision poises the United States to embark on a path in the opposite direction, where the richest people have excellent service and the rest of us have slow service that's not usable for much more than email. Will that happen? Well, I don't think so. I'd like to think that the owners of cable systems are smart enough to know that if they render streaming music and streaming videos unusable, customers will abandon the service. The business model for Netflix and Amazon will not work if their only customers are members of the 1%. Today, the Internet is like a utility. Water, gas, electricity. The rich may use more of these utilities than the rest of us, but access to the services is the same, regardless of where you live or how much you have in the bank. That's the model the Internet should follow. Gas, water, and electricity are all regulated. The Internet should also be regulated. short circuits, some cellular providers have promised unlimited data plans. Trouble is that cellular providers don't define unlimited the way most people define unlimited. And then again, most of the unlimited data plans, which had limits, have already gone away. To say that data caps are not the most popular feature associated with cell phone plans is probably a bit of an understatement. If the websites you visit use lots of graphics, Google has a way to help you beat the cap. What's the trick? Well, you have to use Chrome. This trick probably worked with Chrome 31, which I told you about last week, but Chrome is already at version 32. This is not just for smartphones and tablets, though. If you have a desktop system, the feature is already enabled by default in Chrome, and it's also enabled by default on desktop systems by Firefox 13 and above, Internet Explorer 11, which is available only on Windows 8.1, and Opera. So if you have a smartphone, either an Apple iOS or Android device, you might want to make Chrome your default browser. Then you need to set Chrome to use the new feature, but that's easy. Start by making sure you do have the latest version of Chrome. Because updates are automatic, you probably do. If not, obtain the current version and then open Settings and navigate to Bandwidth Management. You'll see a screen that looks a lot like the one you see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just turn the feature on. Google says this can help you reduce your data consumption by up to 50%. Weasel word alert, 49% is in the up to 50% range, so is 1%. Your mileage will vary. The feature is made possible by an SPDY proxy connection. It transcodes all images to the WebP format, and that makes the images smaller in bytes, so the website will load faster and use less of your data budget. 
So you've probably already worked this out for yourself, but SPDY is pronounced speedy. It's an open networking protocol developed primarily at Google for transporting web content. Speedy does not replace HTTP, but it modifies the way HTTP requests and responses are sent. A Speedy-compatible translation layer can be inserted without any adverse effect on standard operations. When sent via Speedy, HTTP requests are processed, tokenized, simplified, and compressed. The result? Faster downloads, fewer bytes charged against your data cap. television in my office decided to stop working recently, so I went from a 20-inch CRT, wow, that seemed big at the time, to a 40-inch LCD. It's a smart TV, so it connects to the internet via my Wi-Fi router. That means I can watch TED Talks and Amazon Prime videos, too, on this big screen. My younger daughter took a look, said she didn't like the remote control, and suggested I take a look at Android apps to control the TV. I don't dislike the remote. In fact, I appreciate the minimalist approach. Instead of having 3,947 buttons, as a lot of remotes do, this one has only 16 and a glide pad. The manufacturer has done, I think, an excellent job when it comes to providing a tool that is functional. Still, using the built-in remote control to gain access to the channels I'm most likely to watch is a bit of a challenge. The solution turned out to be simple. The television is a Wi-Fi device. My Android tablet is a Wi-Fi device. Certainly, somebody must have created an application that allows the tablet to talk to the television. And they had. I still need to use the Samsung remote control to turn the television on, but after that I can use the Android Nexus 7 to do everything else. The programs I'm most likely to watch are on a single screen. So I simply tap the one I want to see, and the TV changes to that particular channel. If I touch the text input link, I have even more controls at my fingertips. So the bottom line is if you have a smart-enabled television, there's probably an app for your smartphone or tablet that will help you use the TV. think that banks treat security as a top priority, maybe it's time to reconsider that. An article by Nick Summers in Bloomberg Businessweek says that most of the automatic teller machines operated by banks run on Windows XP. As you know, Microsoft will no longer support XP starting in April, and only a small percentage of machines will have been upgraded by then. We can forgive the banks, I suppose. After all, I've had only five years or so to prepare for this. The machines could have been upgraded to Vista or Windows 7 or Windows 8. Vista was released in 2006. And Windows XP dates all the way back to August 2001. So it'll be expiring just a few months before its 13th birthday. The article by Summers says that as of April 8th, 420,000 ATMs will no longer receive regular security patches and won't be in compliance with industry standards. Banks are moving to upgrade the machines to Windows 7, an operating system released five years ago in October. 
Summers also points out that some of these ATMs are actually running what he calls a stripped-down version of XP, known as Windows XP Embedded, which is less susceptible to viruses. And Microsoft will support that version for four more years. The article says nearly all, and by nearly all he means 95%, of ATMs run Windows XP. ATMs were introduced 40 years ago and some of the machines currently in service are more than 20 years old. They can't be upgraded beyond Windows XP, so they'll need to be replaced. And Summers says there's another deadline coming. By 2015, ATMs in the United States will have to be able to support the more secure debit and credit cards with embedded microchips. ATMs in Europe already do that, and they have for some time now. If you'd like to check out the full article, there's a link to the Business Week website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and also to a follow-up article by Nick Summers. twice a month I need to use my home computer from some other location and my preferred tool has been the free version of LogMeIn. But on January 21st I received a message from LogMeIn. The message said, as of January 21st, LogMeIn free will no longer be available. To continue using remote access you will need to purchase an account subscription of LogMeIn Pro. That's right, zero warning. I can sign up two computers for just 50 bucks a year. That's half price. But the deal is good for only one year. After that, it'll be $100 a year, and there's no option for just one computer. And that's all I need. So it's time to find another provider. The most likely replacements are RealVNC, Mikogo, and IMPC Remote. RealVNC works with any operating system. That's a plus. It's available in a free version as well as paid personal and enterprise versions. The paid versions add an option to print documents remotely and open a chat window on the remote computer. Mikogo is a free option that works with Windows systems, Macs, or Linux computers. There's also the ability to share what's on your screen with up to 25 locations. That makes it really handy for somebody who needs to run an online presentation but my primary need is just to be able to control the remote computer. That's included too, but it works in a way that requires people to be at both computers when the connection is established. IMPC Remote also runs on Windows, Macs, and Linux operating systems. It provides the ability to place remote computers into groups and makes connections to multiple desktops possible. And this would maybe seem to be overkill for what I need, but I do plan to look into it. That's my short list of potential replacements. I'll be trying them out in coming weeks. I'll let you know how things work out. The headphone company has launched its new streaming music service that I told you about a few weeks ago. Unlike many of the competing services, users can also download music. After the first 30 days, there is no free option though, and any music you've downloaded will disappear if you stop paying the monthly fee. 
The monthly fee is $10 for single users, $15 for a family of five who can listen on any combination of up to 10 devices. Beats says it'll use algorithms to help select music for users. That's exactly what competing music streamers do. But it will also offer the services of what they call taste masters, who will hand-pick music, just like a real DJ. The Beats blog puts it this way. We wanted to build a music service that combined the freedom of an on-demand subscription service, unlimited, uninterrupted streaming, and downloads of tens of millions of songs, but layer on top features that would give you the feeling only music that moves you can give. If you'd like more information, you can find it on the Beats website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And you can download apps for Apple, Google, and Windows devices. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.